What is up? This is the intro to the Mind on Recovery podcast, episode number seven on shame, uh, starring me and only me, your host, Zoe. I am super excited for this episode, like all the episodes before it, but particularly this one because it's dealing with shame, something that I feel that at everyone deals with, at least on some level, at some point of in their lives. And I'm particularly excited about talking about it because uh, it's usually dealt with on an internal level. It's not really spoken uh, openly about. So I'm more than thrilled to drag that bitch out the darkness and shed some light on it. Uh, What else? I guess that's really it. This is our season finale. I always wanted to do a solo episode for this season and the fact that it just uh happened to be the last episode uh just worked out perfectly for reasons you will soon understand but um yeah without further ado this is the season finale to the mind on recovery podcast episode number seven on shame featuring moi enjoy What is up? We have made it to the promised land. This is episode seven. I bring to you from my dreams that I had. That's my best Dr. Martin Luther King um, impression. But moving on, this is the shame episode where we're going to get into it with none other than myself. All right. So just to hop into it. Uh, we're going to go over some current events just in the name and the honor of our previous episodes where we did that. So here we go. Um, and of course, they will continue to be on the positive side of things because I think you guys had enough negative news for this week. I can't say for sure, but I'm just guessing. All right. Uh, first positive news story or current event is from NBC News uh, saying that the U.S. has administered over 309 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines, according to the CDC. Uh, That's freaking awesome. I swore I thought we had like uh, around 300 something million people, like the population of the states. But uh, taking into account that some of these requires some of these uh, doses requires two to get the full vaccination effect. Um, I don't know exactly where we stand. Let's see. The United States has administered 309,322,545 doses of COVID-19 vaccines and distributed 374 million doses in the country as of Sunday morning, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said. Um The agency said 173 million people in the U.S. had received at least one dose, while 143 million people were fully vaccinated as of 6 a.m. on Sunday, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, The CDC tally does include two-dose vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech, as well as uh, the Johnson & Johnson one-shot. So... 
that's just good news all around. More people are getting vaccinated, which means we're sooner to this thing being over. Um, summer is here. It's damn near here. I'm not sure if it's officially summer yet, but for all intents and purposes, it is summer. I've been telling people all winter and all spring, it's going to be a hot boy summer. Um, I've been working out. I'm ready to walk around with no clothes on because it's just that type of feeling. Um, but I know a lot of other people are just uh, excited to spend time with their families again, to get out the house, uh, start getting back to a new normal. Not normal, but a new normal because I don't think things will ever be the same like they were before uh the pandemic and nor do i i don't know if i would want them to be uh with everything that's happened since with uh george floyd and the protests and and uh, a new presidency like we we got to find a new normal and i do think we will get there uh, it will just take time so yeah that was our first positive news story hooray for covid vaccines moving on to our last one which i thought was funny and interesting um eight in ten youth think gardening is cool and half would rather visit a garden center than a nightclub i've been waiting for this uh research to back up my findings my own personal findings for a long goddamn time because i i don't know i've never been a nightclub person maybe that's just me but uh yeah i've just never been a nightclub person so for the fact that they're saying a study has now gathered that eight and eight and young 10 people think gardening is cool and would rather do that than clubbing uh is just uh reaffirming so a poll of 2000 people found horticulture has enjoyed a renaissance among 18 to 34 year olds during lockdown the appeal appears to be rooted in young people having a desire to make their homes and gardens a nicer place to be, to improve mental health, and create a space they can escape to. Um, yeah, I can definitely agree. For some reason, at my, my most recent job, they have plants there that were dying, and I took it upon myself to take care of them and bring them back to life and nurse them, and I really got, got an attachment to them. Uh... I, I've like messed around with planting here and there, but never like at this job. Like I was really like, those were my plants. I didn't want nobody touching those plants, even though I have no idea where they came from. Uh, but yeah, it was, it, it's like really, well, let me just, this guy saying gardening is a very calming activity as well as a rewarding one. Everyone can enjoy the benefit it brings end quote. And that's kind of like a duh. It's very uh, meditative. And there's just something about taking care of another living thing that's that's just crazy cool. Because I, I can't have a puppy yet. I can't have another puppy. That's it, just going to have to wait. But anyway, uh, the most popular house plants among young adults, number one is cactus, which kind of like, what the fuck? How do you take, how do you take care of a cactus? Do they even need taken care of? You know, they live in deserts, like, that's pretty, like, the most low-maintenance. Anyway, most popular houseplant among young adults is cactus, followed by orchids, followed by aloe vera. The hell? And then the most popular garden plants among young adults is daffodils, followed by roses, followed by lavender, which kind of makes sense. 
but anyway, that was our uh, <laughs> that, that was our positive news stories. I hope you enjoyed them. Got some positivity out your day. And now we're going to move along right into shame after I take a quick breather because I'm in my closet so I can have like the best sound quality and um, sweat's dripping down my face. All right, one second. One second. All right, and I am back. We are back. I am cooled down. Okay, so hopping right into shame. Let's go with our definitions, of course. Just like the textbook definitions of what you might find on Google or your local wiki. So the first one from Oxford. Oxford Languages says... Shame, noun, a painful failure of, or excuse me, a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Example, example is she was hot with shame. Haven't heard that, that using of the word before, but uh, the next definition is a verb, using it as a verb. Um, of a person, action, or situation uh, making someone feel ashamed. Example on that is I tried to shame him into giving some away. Uh, other translations or definitions, uh, a person, action, or situation that brings a loss of respect or honor. Definitely felt that before. Uh, a regrettable or unfortunate situation or action. And this one, uh, just to make someone feel ashamed, to bring shame to uh, or cause to feel cause someone to feel ashamed or inadequate by outdoing or surpassing them. I think those are definitely just like examples also. Um, if I would go to Wikipedia, sh Wikipedia defines shame as, an unpleasant, self-conscious emotion typically associated with a negative evaluation of the self. Withdrawal motivations and feelings of distress, exposure, mistrust, powerlessness, and worthlessness. Wiki just be coming through with the damn uh, definitions. You know, people give, people hate on Wiki, but Wiki be bringing it. Uh, I agree with that one the most. It's definitely unpleasant. It's definitely self-conscious. How I was saying earlier, it's uh, it's it's internal, um, and I feel like a lot of it's brought on self—the negative evaluation of self, of self, um, feelings of distress, exposure, mistrust, powerlessness, worthlessness. Yes, yes, yes. All of those things. So that's definitely. So that's the definitions. Uh, I kind of wanted to introduce someone to you guys. If you don't know who she is, I really, really recommend you uh, looking into her. She is amazing. She's a researcher slash professor slash all around extraordinaire, Miss Brene Brown. Uh, she's from Texas. Texas. She has a little southern drawl. She says y'all and my therapist turned me on to her and she's just amazing what she does is she researches shame and vulnerability and what i wanted to share with you guys uh is some of her quotes or sayings just so we can dig into shame a little deeper okay so from brene brown shame is the gremlin 
saying you're not good enough. So if you're still wondering, like, I'm not sure what shame is, I'm not sure how that differentiates between, I mean, differentiates from embarrassment. Excuse me. Shame is like that little gremlin saying that you're not good enough. That little voice in your head. The who do you think you are voice. Um, you can't do that. You can't start your own business. Um, you can't start your own podcast. What? Uh, who do you think you are? That voice. Um, another one. Shame is a focus on self while guilt is a focus on behavior. If you also had trouble differentiating shame and guilt, shame is the focus on self and guilt is the focus on behavior. Uh, example, one that she always uses, oh, I'm so sorry, I made a stupid mistake. Uh, that's guilt. I made a stupid mistake. Versus, oh, I'm sorry, I am a stupid mistake. You see how the, sh the, the the focus shifted to self. So that would be shame versus, oh, I'm sorry, I just made a mistake. My, my, I, I, I made a mess rather than I am a mess. Um, another one which I thought was highly interesting. Shame is highly, highly, and I believe she used the word highly twice. Shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, anxiety, eating disorders. Okay. Um, and it's so crazy because it's like, it's so, it's so en en enveloped with our world today. Uh, the, the number one thing I could think of is just like, telling parents telling their kids like shame on you or you should be ashamed or stuff like that or maybe in our uh cancel culture where people might be taking it a little bit too far with just the the shame aspect and 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 the online comments and bullying like you should go kill yourself stuff like that like it's just uh a lot it's just a lot, and it really doesn't help. And hearing Brene Brown talk about these just confirmed uh, my suspicions. Okay, moving on. Um, shame feels the same for men and women, but are organized by gender. Uh, while she did a research study and shared the answers or shared the results and it was kind of like the number one thing associated with men and then number one thing associated with women as far as perceptions and I think no I don't think I wrote it down uh, for men there was only one and that was don't be perceived as weak and for women it was a few um, competing conflicting expectation expectations um and I, I to describe that or an example of that is you have to be a lady in the streets and freak in the sheets um like i want you to be my dirty little whore thing but at the same time you need to be prim and proper like not too much um one you need to be hang 
you need to hang out with the guys, be able to hang out with the guys, but also don't like hang around my guy friends like that. That's a little bit too much. You need to back the hell up. Um, what's another one? Another example. Uh, why are you walking around with no makeup? You need makeup. Whereas the, the, and then the conflicting thing, why are you so done up? Who are you looking that good for? That, conflicting expectations, competing, conflicting expectations. I know that was a lot of examples, but I just wanted to nail the point home. Um, there is another study, uh, God, conf with men and women. Um, and it, this is a U.S. based study, but it was like the number one thing that men and women are expected to do and live and for women, it was nice, be nice, uh, modest, thin, and use all available resources for appearance. Uh, for men, it was always show emotional control. Work is first, even before family and all their obligations. Um, pursue status and violence. Moving on from those studies, uh, I think one of the most important parts she talks about with this one video is empathy. Empathy, she says, is the antidote to shame. She says shame needs three things to grow exponentially, and that's secrecy, silence, and judgment. She said you put uh, shame in a little petri dish and you need it to grow. Those things will make it grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Um, and, and, and so the antidote is empathy and finding someone to empathize. And she says to share your shame with only those who deserve or have earned the right to hear, i.e. someone trustworthy and who's, and who your relationship with them can bear the weight or the gravity of the story, the shame story. So Definitely don't go telling the first person you can think of uh, about some shame you're dealing with. Really think about who can handle that news, who can handle that story, who can just be there for you without making new little comments like, oh, I can't believe you did that. You did all that. Or trying to one up you and your story like, oh, well, you think that's bad. Check out this. You want to you want to uh Stray away from those types of folks. I'm sure those are nice folks and they have their purpose, but sharing your most intimate shame story or stories so that you can get some relief. Um, be very particular and use discernment with who you want to share that with. All right. So that was Miss Brene Brown on shame. And really, guys, uh, I don't know. She changed my life. I She has a podcast. What else? She, Oprah. She's been on Oprah a bunch. Brene Brown, B-R-E-N-E, -E, and then brown, like the color brown. Brene Brown. Um, and she's awesome. She can change your life. Okay, so personal experiences now, getting into that. With shame, I mean, the number one thing that comes up, and this was our topic, the last episode was sexuality, sex and sexuality, which... I don't know. On one hand, I don't understand. 
I don't get how something so, I mean, because to me, I've been experimenting with both sexes um, since I was a kid, very, very young, too young, if I really think about it. Um, so it wasn't really, it's not in my head, it's not really that crazy of a thing. It's only when I grew up and started going to, you know, middle school and high school where I started feeling or realizing, getting the gist that, oh, that's not, <laughs> you can't, I guess you can't do that with both of them. I guess I just have to choose one um, gender or one sex. So in my head, it's this thing like, yeah, I always knew to some extent, but I buried that part of me so long ago um, and was just made to feel ashamed about it. Like there was something nasty about it or gross or something wrong with me. When in reality, no offense, I can't understand how straight people are. I don't know. I don't want to get in trouble. I just don't, you know, I don't understand how straight people can... Like, really? You only, like, want, like, you see no other, nothing. You got nothing. All right. Um, so, like, I have my own thoughts about sexuality and whatnot, but that just got so, it couldn't bear the weight of the whole entire world just being like, this is not right. Uh, we don't allow for this. Um, even in the LGBT community, there is bisexual erasure people saying that it doesn't exist oh it's just a phase um and that's super hurtful i think people forget a lot a lot of times that it it, it has its own full freaking letter in lgbtq plus but you don't hear about it a lot and i think that also contributed to just the shame and i don't know keeping that part of me away keeping that part of me away until I just got tired of it. Um, so yeah, that was that's the number one thing that pops up into my head when thinking about shame in my own personal experience. That's what the main thing uh, that I've worked on, that I'm continuing to work on, it's still not fully healed. I'm still not fully past it. It's going to take a lot more time uh, to vomit up the rest of the filth I'd been taught about myself and half believed at Mr. as Mr. James Baldwin so eloquently put it so but I'm in it for the long haul I think it will happen so one last thing that I want to hit on before the end of this episode the end of this season and after we take this short break um, is one more experience that I dealt with regarding shame and recovery uh, because being completely honest just gonna say it I haven't been painting the full list the fullest picture or the most truest picture of my recovery when talking to others and like friends family and those in the recovery community so I would like to get it clear get it all out because the shame and the guilt is starting to affect my life and I'm ready to move the hell on. And so, yeah, I'm ready to come clean about me not being absolutely completely sober over this past 
what, 19, 20, 21 months and how I will now be transitioning to moderation or I will be at least trying moderation from this point on. So we'll get into that saucy stuff right after the break. What's up, y'all? All right, this is the uh, intermission break, and I didn't have any ideas, so I thought I'd read to you guys what's in this fortune cookie. And it'll just be like everyone's fortune. Okay. I'll, I'll wait to eat that. Uh, all right. Delight and surprise someone today. All right. So that's your guys' uh, homework. Delight and surprise someone today from Panda Express. All right. Back to the show. Now. All right. And we are back to the Mind on Recovery podcast, the season finale. And I just dropped a bomb on y'all. So let's just get right into it. Yes, it is true. I am no longer sober. Well, I I mean, I am currently, but you know what I mean? Uh, I started my most recent sobriety journey in August of 2019, about a week before I checked myself in to rehab. And I believe the first time I used LSD again was June or July of 2020. Oh, excuse me. So just short of my one year sober celebrations. Uh, yeah, it's all coming out. Um, and not because I want to be salacious or needed a grand season finale, but because I'm tired of hiding it and I'm tired of feeling shame around it. When in reality, I'm really not that confused on my position. I'm also in the vulnerability spirit today because I'm channeling my beginning intention with starting this podcast which was to help people. Uh, my friend Ali had just passed away from an overdose and other mental health issues. And I said I was going to spread the word on mental health in her memory. Destigmatize it. So if someone out there listening, someone amongst our tens of twenties of audience listeners, if someone gets any help from my truth, from my telling on myself, then... I've done my job and the rest can fall where it may. Um, Though not every episode topic is substance use or recovery related, the majority of the show does revolve around this world. And I believe my experience with using LSD and only LSD during my quote-unquote sober period speaks to something and needs to be shared. Even if I'm not certain what that something is just yet. Uh, And though I don't share everything about my personal life on this podcast for my own reasons, this felt and feels different. It needs to be underscored that there are different roads of help and recovery out there. Lastly, what led me on this uh, journey of self-disclosure was hearing celebrities disclose their own slips this past year, like Dax Shepard announcing his relapse on his own podcast after 16 years of sobriety. And then you got Kelly Osbourne. She announced her relapse publicly after almost four years clean and sober. I thought that was incredibly 
incredibly brave and cool of them to share their story, and I completely understand why they did it. Uh, shit, hearing their stories reinforced to me that it was okay, that I was okay, and I could still help someone else through the sharing of my own story. Uh, after all, this is what this is all about service unto others so uh so at my recent job i found a uh, substance abuse book in an unused office that used to belong to a counselor uh so while i was digging in i found a bunch of topics uh from like samoan's views on alcohol and drugs to the description of the drug classes like hallucinogenics opioids um but the most interesting chapter I landed on happened to be the one describing all the models and theories on substance use and alcoholism. You see, on some level, I've always known that addiction as a disease was still not fully accepted by the entire medical facility or community, excuse me. And it sure as hell wasn't in the general public, but I never really thought to look at the other models or theories. In treatment, it was just drilled into our heads that this was a disease or a disorder of the brain, and they always seemingly had their facts to back that up. So even if there was a speck of doubt in my mind, it was totally scrubbed by the, la by the uh, time I left treatment. That is, until I found this damn book. Reading about the biopsychosocial model of addiction, also known as the multivariate or multidimensional theory, proved to be an aha moment for me but a confusing one at that uh, there's limited research out there compared to the disease model and getting an actual clear definition was harder to come by uh, here's an off the cuff quick definition because this is still a shame episode um, it's that instead of focusing on one or the other the multivariate or multidimensional model takes into account the biological, physiological, and sociological factors in one's case to determine the best approach to treatment for that one individual. And of course, there's probably some extra on there that I'm missing. So please, as always, make sure you do your own homework and research on this stuff uh, and to not just take my word on it. Don't take anyone's word on anything. Uh, but yeah, this was very surprising to me. I was not expecting to see this again. I was just thinking disease, disease, disease. So, and this right here, this model, the multidimensional model, this would differ from the current approach of just throwing everyone who had a substance problem in NA or AA. Uh, it's still all very exploratory for me. I still believe in certain things that relate to the disease model, such as there being a line that everyone has the power to cross, the line of no return, if you will, when compulsion turns into addiction. Um, though some may be less or more susceptible, some lines farther than others, I do think that anyone who tries hard enough can cross into addiction, uh, whether via alcohol or drugs or other behaviors um and with that i understand i also understand why it might not be the 
most optimal thing to tell someone who's in deep heroin and fentanyl addiction that, hey, there's this other, uh, there's this other model or theory uh, out there where there's a chance you don't have to quit everything in the long run, but blah, blah, blah. You know, I completely get that when someone's at that point, like I was, the brakes need to be pumped long and hard. Uh, my medical team was in save this person's life mode and I don't blame them. And I still think that complete abstinence was the best option for me at that time. I needed to stop everything and remember what quote unquote normal felt like. Remember who the hell I was and what the hell I wanted in life. I don't think that would have been possible or nearly as successful if I was still allowed my nightly weed habit or a drink every here and then and then but uh i mean truthfully i already tried that in 2019 and with the help of suboxone my heroin habit just turned into a fentanyl habits uh so yeah fresh from 12-step thinking my or as 12-step treatment, my thinking was very one-track-minded in that you either are or you aren't. And if you are, you are for life, period. That's the general sentiment in the recovery rooms of AA. No if and buts. Even if you have 30 years of sobriety, you're still an addict and you are still recovering. So I now think this type of thinking can do more harm than good in some cases. For myself, I don't believe it's helpful to think that I can't ever get better or fully healthy or fully recovered. For example, even in the big book, the ahead of its time leading text of AA written in the 1930s, states in the foreword of its first edition, quote, We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, end quote. Keyword there is recovered, and more specifically is the fact that it is in past tense, pointing to the fact that it already has happened for them. Uh, naturally, I wonder, when will it happen for me? I know it'll most likely happen at a different time than my recovery family. I know that'll probably look different than those in my recovery family, but I think even more important is how I will get there. I already have faith. I already have faith I'll recover. So now it's more of what will my personal program look like that'll keep me on track towards that recovery? Because obviously it's already not looking like the program my peers have. Um, by me openly contemplating how I'll eat how I'll get there. I hope it's clear to everyone that I am not recovered yet. I also hope it's clear that I am not proposing to have all the answers or know any better than the medical or AA community because I honestly don't. All I have is just the information I've gathered on my own from living for 29 years and being around different levels of alcoholism and substance use as well as spending time in treatment and in the 12-step world. Aside from that, all I know is myself and what's been working and not working for me. 
I know I still have a long ways to go before I'm fully comfortable in my own skin and my fears of people and economic insecurity are gone. I know it's still, uh, it'll still take uncomfortable amounts of connection and community to keep me out of trouble and for myself seeking ways to fully slip away. The self-work never stopping is one of the many parts of 12-step I do agree with. Uh, I just believe that to work on myself is to do just that, work on myself. Being broken may have been what started this path of self-improvement for me, but being broken is not the thing that keeps me going. Life today and the hope for a better tomorrow is what keeps me going, as cheesy as it may seem. I'm on the path of being just a little bit better of a human than I was yesterday. Uh, I felt a lot of shame around me using LSD here and there over the past 20 months or so of my recovery, and I'm tired of feeling that. Uh, it's not what I, it's not that I wanted or was trying to deceive people. I, in every way imaginable, was and still am recovering and getting my life back. But how do you explain all that to someone you're just saying hi and bye to? That isn't exactly like a 60-second conversation. And I never figured that out. But guess I have to now. Also, I always criticize people who relapsed but were still... Excuse me who relapsed but were still secretive or remorseful about it to their friends or family. My thinking was that of, look, you already used, you're still an adult, so why not just stand in your decision and try to enjoy it before you come back down to earth? But now it is my turn, and I humbly, humbly would like to take my own medicine, practice what I preach, and do the same. I've used LSD three times during my recovery period, where I was still claiming to be quote-unquote sober. Not that it matters much, but this was all during times of vacation and downtime in general. It wasn't like I was going to meetings high or bringing it around my recovery family. I was using it just like I said I would when I was at rehab, for those of you that remember. My reasoning behind it was that LSD for me was more of a spiritual thing rather than an escape or feel-good thing, although there are elements of that as well. I felt and still feel that LSD recenters me in a way that meditation hasn't yet and reminds me that we are all one from the jagged tips of our fingernails to the moist roots of a fern I did not choose LSD because the founder of AA, Dr. Bill W., had also experimented with it in his own recovery. No, that was just a happy accident. I am also not recommending co-signing or advising people to go out and try acid. Everyone needs to consult with their own support team and do their own research like I'm doing still to this day. I just wanted to drive the point home that this slight left in the road was planned to an extent um i don't know how i'll answer now when people ask me if i'm still sober since for the majority of time i technically am uh, i guess i won't be officially counting my time for the foreseeable future as i try this moderation thing out 
yes, my sobriety is no longer continuous, and yes, I have used mind-altering substances aside from coffee and cigarettes. Uh, so according to 12-step AA guidelines, that is a relapse period. And sure, maybe it is. Um, but I checked myself into treatment for black tar heroin and fentanyl, not acid. And while others like the 12-step community may disagree, I think that means something. Now, I do believe that even using a drug that wasn't the one you had trouble with can still get you into trouble. I do believe that. I don't believe, though, that it's every single person's story that deals with substance use. And more importantly, I'm not 100% sure if it's even my own. Um, adding to the 12-step uh, guidelines and suggestions, even the big book that I mentioned earlier itself states to try moderation if you must, and that they tip their hat to whoever actually can do so. So it's not completely a completely off-the-rails path I'm trying here. Yet the shame that was beginning to creep up on me made me feel as if I wasn't a part of anymore. Something 12-step also warns us about. How dare someone even toy with the idea that their journey may be different. Once an addict, always an addict, they say. Um, at the end of the day, I have to focus on my own personal recovery journey, not anyone else's, only mine. I got into recovery for the above-mentioned drugs and because I had hit a wall in life, Forgetting who I was, forgetting what I wanted, forgetting what it was all about, and most of all, not caring about remembering any of it. I was running away from feeling, dealing, and taking responsibility, and the drugs were just a symptom of my underlying issues and false indifference. Today, I can say I absolutely give a damn about my life. I know what I want to an extent, and never want to forget that again. I still work every day on those underlying issues, feeling, dealing, and taking responsibility for my shit because the other option can no longer be an option. Been there, done that, got the medical bills. To say I'm scared shitless of losing my way again would be an understatement. Um... One of my other main fears is to no longer be connected to this amazing group of people I've met bonded and recovered with over the past two or so years this amazing group of friends i was thinking if we all met for this singular purpose of getting and staying sober what does it mean for one of us to not be sober anymore or has a lapse in that sobriety is that connection immediately lost is it any different i mean there has been examples in the past with peers relapsing and falling off but that was more due to them not reaching out for whatever reason. No one was explicitly outcast, though I can see how it looked like that on the outside. Since we are all in early recovery still and are taught self-preservation above all. If that means dealing or deleting a friend's phone number or just blocking it for a few weeks or months, then so be it. As long as it doesn't start a domino-like chain reaction of relapses, which still happens from time to time. I think while these relationships will obviously be different, I really hope to God they don't cease because in my eyes, 
We all connected on so much more than just stopping our use of alcohol and drugs. We connected on our lives being in shambles and our families not knowing how to help. We connected on wanting to change for the better, wanting to live versus dying and other shared pains. We connected on smiling again and belly laughs late at night, regaining our family's trust again and seeing each other's spirits relight. Sobriety overall was just the genesis spark, the reason for being but not the end all, just the tip of an entire iceberg of reasons one connects with another. Though I may lose some sober friends after sharing this news, and that will hurt, I have to give those same amazing people I just raved about at least the benefit of the doubt that they'll be understanding enough to know where I'm coming from. Or if they don't, at least care enough to still be there. Queen Oprah said, quote, you can't live a brave life without disappointing some people, end quote, which resonated hard to a people pleaser like myself, huge people pleaser. With that said, I have to keep in mind that I'll never be alone and that I still have a gang of people rooting for me, family and friends alike, which I just re-realized this past week. I have so many cousins and aunts and friends from elementary and old co-workers and past managers and so many more still in my corner wishing me success. That's what I remind myself with whenever I start to worry about being that isolated kid again holed up in a studio alone on the floor sick from heroin withdrawal. I will be okay. And while... I will respect anyone's decision to take a step back from me for this choice in my recovery. I refuse to be consumed by an all-encompassing shame shitstorm because of it. Though I am still shaking off the last flex of it regarding said choice, I won't remain with it much longer for I now know the power that shame possesses. The power to knock us off our game and into a tailspin when we least expect it when we thought it was safe because only we knew, when it's in the dark because we choose to keep it there. I was always the kid, and now the adult, uh, that no one had to worry about. Oh, Zoe's got it, he's got this, or he'll be fine. Or why can't you be more like Zoe? Please stop saying that to your children. I was always that kid. And this past two years, I thought if I hadn't maintained my perfect sobriety score, uh, then those people's words would be for nothing. But I've just come to realize that nothing has to fundamentally change. They said I'll be fine, so why not just be fine? They've said I can do this, and I know I can do this. So how about I just do it? I can still work on handling my shit and improving myself. That doesn't have to stop. What does need to stop is me psyching myself out into worry and panic. People have said those things all these years for a reason. And I intend to prove every one of them, most importantly myself, right. Though whatever trials and tribulations... Whatever trials and tribulations are up next for me in life, because they're always coming, I will be okay in the end. 
even if this experiment of mine goes wrong and I have to eat my words and crawl back to complete abstinence, I'll still believe and champion other routes and other possibilities for recovery from substance use, even if those routes are not my own in the end. It's just something I have to find out for myself. I already have shame around having substance issues in the first place, and I'll be damned if I'm going to carry around some more for trying something different. I know what to do and who to ask for help when I don't, and where to go if I indeed need to go. Remembering gratitude, I'd have to mention that I'm grateful for this platform, that is this podcast. Um... It has really been a cathartic outlet for me to share and to try and make sense of these crazy cards we've all been dealt while helping others at the same damn time. That's just been amazing. I'm also grateful for the love of all my friends and family, past, present, who I know in the end will continue supporting the person they know me to be as well as the person I strive to be. Lastly, I'm grateful to all you listeners out there because as cliche as it sounds, I literally wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for you. Though we're not on the top 10 charts, nor was that the intention, the fact that we even have one listener is all I needed to keep going, to keep digging for answers, and to keep bringing things out the dark and into the light to remind us all that we're not alone in these mental health struggles and rarely ever are. We can only rid the shame by speaking of it. You and this podcast have done wonders for my overall health. And with that, I say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please continue to be safe out there. Have an awesome week and an even greater summer. And I'll see you guys for our final season number three this fall. Namaste. Peace. All right. And that was our season two finale episode number seven on shame starring your boy Zoe. Um, I hope you I don't know if enjoyed is the right word, but I hope you definitely got something out of that to help you on your journey this week help you on this journey this summer um yeah i hope something i hope you can grab something from that that you can take with you until we return in the fall with season three being our last season nothing nothing's wrong nothing happened um i just i feel like i need to keep things interesting and i want to start moving on to other projects such as my me writing a book some scripts some screenplays um getting back into the video production thing some other exciting stuff that i don't want to mention right now um it's just time so after season three wraps which will be a short season um yeah it'll be on to the next and i'm really excited about what that next will be so anywho thank you guys so much for still sticking with me and the podcast team this long uh gratitude 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 thank you so much and beyonce and prince we pray namaste